Ephesians chapter 1 starts out, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So last week we took a look at the beginning of the work God did in this uh, Asian city of Ephesus through Paul the Apostle. He used a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, he um, used one of their kind of disciples, Apollos. And uh, we looked at all that in Acts 18, 18. And uh, we see that Paul just kind of hopped into Ephesus real quick, left Aquila and Priscilla because he was trying to get down to a feast in Jerusalem. And so while Aquila and Priscilla were left there, they met this just awesome guy named Apollos who had kind of a limited knowledge of Jesus and kind of the New Testament era. And so they taught him more thoroughly. And then he was like sent out of Ephesus uh, to be just like a bold, radical tool for the Lord. And, uh, and so last week we looked at kind of like a character study in Apollos. It was just really encouraging and cool to look at. Um, if you get online, you can listen to that. And, uh, and then we looked at Paul coming back into Ephesus, and he saw a group of 12 guys who were disciples. Uh, there was something about him that when Paul looked at him, he said, have you guys received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they're like, who's the Holy Spirit? We don't even know who that is, you know. And so then he had kind of like a, a little educational time. Uh, they were baptized into a, like a New Testament baptism with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, appears they were also baptized with the Holy Spirit uh, there as well, as Paul then laid hands on him. And so we looked last week at just uh, looking at our lives. And, you know, yeah, we call ourselves disciples, but if people were to look at your lifestyle, you know, would they say, do you even have the Holy Spirit? Like, there's something about you that's just like powerless and dry and just something's missing in your Christianity. And, um, and we, just, we looked at the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so I uh, encourage you guys to listen to that study as well. Don't have time to do a, even a review on that because I got lots to cover tonight. So, uh, so those guys, they were baptized. They were baptized uh, with water. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Nothing crazy psycho happening, but some gifts were given to them. And, uh, and apparently they joined probably Paul's team here as he went in. Verse 8, we'll pick up... Uh, to the story continuing this week, Acts 19.8, that Paul then went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, and this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Uh, so some just notes out of that little section is that Paul spoke boldly, uh, speaks of he had co uh, courage. There was a confidence in his spirit and manner uh, that we see happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses of me uh, throughout the world. And we see Paul walking in that bold confidence. He uh, was brave and courageous in his spirit 
and demeanor. And something that comes from boldness is that we will find ourselves reasoning with people and persuading people. And that's something that happens as we witness for Jesus. There's times of reasoning. Just as Isaiah would, would write, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's just be reasonable about this. Though your sins were as scarlet, I'll make them whiter than snow. Just be reasonable about this. And so within our testimony, testimonies with our friends, with our neighbors, there's reasoning. Like, hey, have you thought of this? Have you thought of this? Have you thought of this? And yeah, 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 yeah. But reason through things with them. And then also persuade. Persuade. So I encourage you guys, get on YouTube, get online. Get, get an arsenal of uh, just wonderful evangelical tools to, to witness to people. Probably like the best is um, the resurrection of Jesus. You see in the book of Acts that those guys almost every time they were preaching Jesus, they were talking about the resurrection. And uh, you can get online, type in Easter or something in our website and, and listen to many sermons that I've done that show that the resurrection of Jesus is the best proved fact in history. And if you can prove the resurrection, it proves that everything else Jesus said and did were true and right. And so, man, know the resurrection of Jesus. Preach the resurrection. Reason and persuade. Uh, and know your Bible. Know where your Bible came from. Know why it's an authority. Know the prophecies in it that show that this isn't just a book of man or a bunch of guys that were high on opiates that wrote it, you know, just for a good Saturday night. This is the Holy Spirit carrying men along and speaking to them and having them write things down, even though in their own personalities and styles and, and with what's going on in the cultures around them. So, um, so persuade people as you're witnessing with them. Reason with them. And uh, yet even then, good old reasoning and persuading times, you'll have people reject the good news. People will still be hardened. And that's why it's good to go into those times with prayer. You know, it was said that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And there's times that we preach and man, people are just melted before the Lord. And there's times that we preach and their hearts are hardened before the Lord. And so we pray for them that they would be a softness uh, Paul's audience here were hardened, disbelieved, even so much so that they began blaspheming and speaking evil about the way. And so Paul goes into this place uh, called the School of Tyrannus. Good name for anyone thinking of having a boy here. Uh, Tyrannus, middle name Soros, and okay, we'll stop there. But, uh, and he goes into this two-year Bible college program, in a sense, in the school of Tyrannus, kind of a school of ministry, and the fruit out of that ministry is incredible. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. This speaks about a, a, an area in the world the size of California reached in about two years. And that's just part of the Lord stirring in us to equip you guys to be ministers of the gospel. Looking at probably right after the Nepal trip, starting up equip again. And uh, we're talking right now about maybe having it be a Sunday morning thing, like a Sunday school class, but like a Bible college that we come here, get equipped right before church. And, um, and then and you guys are sent out to go minister to the community and to the world during those times. But um, for two years, uh, which... The, just the idea of a five-hour class 
uh, for two years would be about 3,650 hours worth of schooling um, that uh, may have taken place here in Ephesus. And so it's really cool to be going through the Acts history because we're going to be spending you know, about 12 weeks in, F- in Ephesians and we're really wanting to know what is it that this church experienced with Paul while he was there in, this, uh, in his ministry and in his time uh, with them. The seven churches we read about in Revelation are a result of this two years of ministry in Ephesus. And uh, we see these fi- uh, founding of churches like Corinth was founded during this time and Hierapolis was founded in this time. And so just a really cool two-year school ministry period where a fruitful harvest and ministry took place. Now, uh, verses 11 through 22, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You can't make this stuff up. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who'd practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So uh, just this section of that time of ministry Things that were happening during that two-year period of school of ministry happening in the school of Tyrannus. Where one thing, incredible, unusual miracles. speaks of special, extraordinary, remarkable miracles took place. Now, in Corinth, Paul was afraid and Jesus appeared to him in a dream saying, Don't be afraid. I've got a lot of men here in the city who are for you. Nothing's going to happen to you here. And that was encouraging to Paul's time in Corinth. And in his time in Ephesus, where we're going to see a lot of persecution also taking place, um, these times of unusual, remarkable miracles, those can be very encouraging things in the midst of dark, hard times. And uh, we've seen that in our church, times where God has healed people, times where God has miraculously come through uh, in provision, in, in another incredible way. Those are, those are like Gatorades in the marathon, you know, where you just get a, whoosh, all right, you know, I get a little trust thrust in the midst of the race. And so uh, Paul, or Paul was confirmed and validated in his ministry 
by these incredible miracles and signs and wonders uh, that would take place. Signs of, of apostles is what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that many signs of apostles were accomplished among you with perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So much so that things were taken from his body like hankies. And I don't know when the last time you packed a hanky around with you, but usually those aren't things that you just go handing out to people. Um, but I just remember my dad always had a hanky. And out when you're farming, you know, those are not things that you just, let me just pray for your healing by laying this upon you, okay? Um, apparently it is, though. It was like his sweatband, you know, um, as well as his tent-making apron or his woodworker's apron. These things would get passed around. And granted, I think someone was straight loco, you know, if he did this today in 2016. And yet the Lord was working in such a way there that they would kind of have this point of contact to increase faith to where the hanky of the apron were taken and people were healed. And we see this in Jesus' ministry as well. Like in Matthew 9.20, there was a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. She'd spent all her money and doctors couldn't heal her. And she was desperate. She came to a place where there was a crowd and around Jesus. They were thronging Jesus. And she just said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment... I'll be healed. There was just kind of like this point of contact to help increase faith. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And so she goes, she touches the hem of his garment, and it says immediately power went forth from Jesus, and she was healed. And that the blood was dried up. And Jesus says, who touched me? For I felt power go forth from me. And the woman said, it was me, you know. And, and the story goes on, and, and uh, just... Then and now as well, there's just times when just kind of that point of contact is an encouragement to our faith. And maybe it's just, man, you're sick and you need the elders to come lay hands on you and pray for you. Or you need to just come to church and spend some time in the sanctuary praying. And like Psalm 73, you get perspective when you're in the, the sanctuary of the Lord. And, uh, and so, you know, we don't necessarily throw a lot of of hankies out there today, but, you know, if the Lord led, like, man, you know, we're going to do something along these lines to just help encourage our faith in this time. Um, there was a major problem in Corinth with demonic activity. And uh, th these are scary things. If you've ever encountered a demon or a demon-possessed person, um, th these are things that just cause your heart to leap up into your throat. And it's good to be ready for it. Um, times that uh, in Brazil, coming across a demon-possessed man, and I just wasn't ready for the maybe the ministry opportunity that was in front of me. And I thought I was going to choke on my own tongue. And I just told him to get away from me. And uh, lost, lost out on a great opportunity. But Jesus says these times of demon possession, these are things that we, got, we need to cultivate an attitude of prayer in our life where we're preparing for this through prayer and fasting. And that's why before we go to Nepal, you know, where it's very demonic and very dark, uh, we spend time fasting and praying as a church. Right now on Wednesdays, we're fasting uh, uh, in preparation for this trip and preparing the ground. Um, we are uh, fasting as a church before we leave as well in our weekly fast. Um, but all that to be said, that there in Ephesus, uh, there was powerful exorcism, if you will, where um, Christians were casting out demons 
and these traveling vagabond uh, sorcerer type dudes, even Jewish, um, began to try to see some sort of formula in what Christians were doing to cast out demons. And so they tried to copy that. And that's often what would happen back then is they would try to write down the, the, the correct bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, you know, and this is how it was done. And so if I do it just like that, we'll cast the demon out. And, um, and you notice that in the language there in the book of Acts that we cast you out in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And so this isn't even, there's nothing about me here. It's, that guy's got power, and, it, and so I'm, I'm kind of like riding Paul's coattails here. And you just see that that, that just doesn't work. <laughs> you know, the demon says, I know Jesus, and I tremble, and I'm familiar with Paul, and the demons are familiar with, uh, with the believers. And it, remember Jesus said to Peter that Satan is asked by, for you because he wants to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And, uh, and we even went through a period here where we just knew the Lord was opening up such a door for world missions that we just felt so strongly as elders that just the enemy just like knew who we were. We were on the map as a church. And so just to go through prayer that uh, we wouldn't, you know, um, forget to, to wage the good warfare in the spirit. And so uh, in this case, uh, the, the magic spells and the things such as that, uh, it just doesn't work. It's not on par with a personal relationship with Jesus. As Paul says, greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. John Stott said, the power of Jesus is not mechanical, nor can people use it secondhand. You know, it's kind of been said that Jesus only has children, doesn't have grandchildren in the sense that, man, it's our personal relationship that brings the power. Um, And so when that happened with the seven sons of Sceva and the demon jumped on them and, you know, beat seven of them up, you probably heard a a story of my friend uh, in Raul Reese's church when they cast the demon out uh, down there in California. And, you know, it turned and, you know, there was like a kung fu match going on (laughs) between a police officer and the pastor and this demon-possessed guy. And uh, and it was only the mentioning of the cross uh, of Jesus and the victory over him that this demon finally was... Um, was cast out. But uh, what that often does is it leads to a fear and a good holy terror. And we see in verse 17 that that fear or that terror fell on them all. The Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. And so God shows up here uh, working in the apostle Paul. There's something so powerful that happens in Ephesus as the name of Jesus is magnified. And people fear the Lord. They're coming to the Lord. I was reminded in my notes um, from years ago of my friend Ivan, who uh, you've heard me recently tell of the revival that happened in my youth group, and that there was the one friend a couple years older uh, than me in high school who uh, got saved out of just like the partying life and was standing up in the high school and preaching the gospel. Well, that was at Crescent Valley High School. And at the same, in the same year, one of his friends who was in the partying lifestyle but went to Corvallis High School um, was being witnessed to by Joe and uh, just this, this friend from Corvallis High School, his name was Ivan, uh, was just wrestling through this, just these words from Joe and the gospel and was walking down the street uh, one night and the fear of the Lord came upon him as a uh, junior in high school uh, to where he fell down on the street 
and gave his life to Jesus and then became part of this revival that God was doing. And, uh, and just that happens, you guys. We need to pray that the fear of the Lord would come upon our friends and family, that they would understand there's a real battle going on and that they would come to Jesus who's the victor in it. And so in verse 19, the Ephesians have this fear of the Lord come upon them and they settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life once and for all. They go in all the way. And it says that they, um, those who practice magic brought their magic books and burned them in the sight of everyone. It seems like in the middle of the city, and we can even pop up the, um, the picture there of the, uh, the temple uh, in the main street there in Ephesus. And just in the, in the midst of everyone, uh, there's this bonfire going on of magic books and witchcraft and the, the spells and such. And, um, and there's a repentance from wickedness that takes place. And maybe you've been a part of something like that, that as people get saved, they're just seeing all of this stuff that is dark and demonic and wicked, and they're just like, I've got to get rid of this. I've got to get rid of this. And uh, I remember uh, a girl, um, Angie, back in high school, she got saved at one of our FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athlete meetings, and she had all of this dark music, and she came out uh, to our farm, and my sister and I took her out to the sagebrush, and we hung the CDs up on the sagebrush, and we blew these CDs away uh, with 12-gauge shotguns, you know, and it was just a picture of, of repentance uh, in, in her life. Uh, just the burning of the things, the magic cards, uh, the Ouija boards, and how many Christians are into the, um, you know, the, the uh, you read them in the newspaper, help me out here, horoscopes, you know, which... When you read the scriptures, these are dark abominations, demonic things that open up lines of wickedness in our lives. And it's like, man, run from that. I'm not saying burn your news, the whole newspaper. Just rip that part out and burn that part. But, uh, but burning it, getting rid of it. I remember in high school, we, lived in, we moved into this house. And upstairs in my house, there was this uh, kind of secret door. And uh, I opened up this secret door. It's like the secret garden, only different. And there was a box of pornography that was from like the 70s that belonged to my landlord's son. <laughs> so, I mean, this is like old stuff that's been sitting in here. And I just knew, you just sensed the demonic presence in the room. And I took that box out to the horse pasture. We had a creek flowing through our land. And I doused it with gasoline and I lit it on fire. I was like, this is something that can have no place in my life and in our lives. We've got to cut these things off at the root. And nowadays, it's not so much the magazines, but it's the connections that we have in our house. It's the devices that we have. We've got to cut off the hands that cause us to sin and gouge out the eyes and light them on fire and get rid of them. And I believe that as we do this, it will bring about revival in our church and our life. And, and we're calling out the idols in our community. And so we're, you know, whatever it may be, the Holy Spirit is touching you. It's like, it's time to burn that. It's time to cancel that. It's time to get rid of that. It's time to stop that practice. It's time to stop going there. It's time to light it on fire. Because the lighting on fire, is there's a permanence to it. There's no going back. There's the story of Hernando Cortez. And 
this guy was a gifted sailor, a gifted um, uh, explorer, and he called 200 sailors to go with him to the um, Mexican uh, Yucatan Peninsula and to go basically, you know, collect all the gold from all of the, the natives there. And you may remember the story that Hernando Cortez pulls up with something like 12 ships and 200 sailors, and they get up on the beach, and he's giving this great speech, and he's charging everyone up to go into the jungle and to go get the gold, and we're going to go conquer. And right when he's done, and everyone's all worked up, and he says, and burn the ships! And everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, (laughs) the record. And burn the ships. This is like either we go and we come back as victors or we, we perish. Like we are all in here. And that's essentially what's happening in Ephesus. They're, they're all in. They're burning it all. They're bringing it all before the Lord. And they're saying, it's all or nothing. There's no turning back. You know, the old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And so we see just this revival take place. Many fearing the Lord. Many believing. And verse 20 tells us, And so, or for in this way, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. There's a direct connection between the word of God growing mightily and prevailing and us burning our books. I should probably specify that. We're not just burning. This isn't the book 1981 here where we're burning all of our books. Burning the wicked books. Burning the spell books. Disconnecting that set of channels that is a stumbling block, you know. Or, or cutting off that relationship. You know what it is. The Lord's laying it on your heart tonight. And so at the same time, verse 23, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled and confused, and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, 
Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, for you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly." For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give an account for this disorderly gathering. And when he'd said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And so you have a lot going on here. Let's just cycle through some of these uh, pictures that we've got uh, from Ephesus. So you've got the Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the, of the world, historically. Uh, man, like Ephesus was known by this temple, as uh, as they're talking about with Demetrius. You know, all of Asia seems to have some sort of worship connection uh, with Artemis or Diana uh, of the Ephesians. Um, you know, you remember last week that uh, someone had basically found this black rock that uh, they believe was cast down by Zeus, and it's mentioned there in the Book of Acts. And someone whittled this carving of Diana in it, who is this, uh, it was described a squatting, multi-breasted, this is a different version, this is an Egyptian version of it, not so much squatting, but this multi-breasted goddess of fertility and sexuality. And so uh, this was, you know, often made out of silver and given out, and really the city's pocketbooks uh, were, you know, would rise or fall based on the sell of Diana, who would be sold out to people traveling um, and worshiping. And so tourism affected the economy in a sense. Uh, then we have the uh, uh, kind of a city, city thoroughfare there with the temple there at the end. Uh, then let's show just uh, the Colosseum. Got a couple different pictures of this twenty to 30,000 seat Colosseum that, uh, guys, look at it. These are the stones, uh, you know, that, that this great uproar took place. And so you can, you can picture it happening um, historically. And so what we have is people burning their witchcraft books, burning their sinful things, turning to the Lord with fear of God, and there's gospel transformation happening in Ephesus. It is being felt in Ephesus all the way down to the economy of the city. In verses 26 and 27, Paul's been preaching the logic of worshiping created things, that nothing is worthy of our worship except for the one who's the creator. And so Paul is saying that man-made gods are no gods at all. And so how would we be able to tell if the gospel is transforming Prineville? I think it was... um, Who's the preacher? Patrick's his last name. Sorry, I'm just totally blanking. Just had the sermon come to my mind of, he just talks about, man, you want a revival in your town? Then start pinpointing the idols of men's hearts 
and calling them out and calling towards repentance. It's going to stir up a hornet's nest because no one likes their idols touched as we see here. But it will also bring about the conviction of the Holy Spirit into the idolatry of our nation. I encourage you guys, maybe go home tomorrow in your quiet times and just this week, be praying about this for your home, for our culture, for Prineville. What are the idols in our culture? And let's start praying towards them to be toppled over. We don't have the multi-breasted squatting rock, you know, that we worship. But we've got all kinds of other things that consume our time, our money, our resources, our worship, and our hearts. But we'll see that the government will start being affected. The authorities, the economics, it will be obvious. The gospel had hit the pocketbooks and challenged the religious devotion of the Ephesians. And, and so this riot happens and as it's taking place, Paul has the courage and the same boldness he spoke of in Ephesus this whole time. And he essentially wants to go into this riot. He's basically saying, let me at him, let me at him. You know, just like the fight, you know, where the friends are grabbing by the clothes and like, get back here. And he's, let me at him, let me get in there. And they're holding them back. They beg him, don't go in there. And Paul sees, this is 30,000 people that could hear the gospel. I've got, I've got an amphitheater here full of people that could hear the gospel. Let's talk to them about Jesus. You've got a guy named Alexander who's a Jew from Ephesus. And he's like, hold on, hold on. I just want to make a distinction. It's not the Jews that are causing it. And then when they hear that he's just a Jew, they, they shut him up. And they just, you know, greatest Diana of the Ephesians, greatest Diana. For two hours, this is going on. It's almost uh, comedy here because then you've got people that are there and they don't even know why they're there and that's often mob mentality you know that's a riot for you is the what's going on i don't know i thought you had the oh well you know let's throw something through a window and steal a tv you know or whatever but uh you got this uh you got two hours of chanting as this crowd is worked up in verse 34 Stott says, the only thing heathenism can do against the power of the gospel is to chant itself hoarse. That's all it can do. You got the politician stand up who's like the county clerk. And back in the day, the county clerk, uh, the secretary, was like the authority and spoke to, for the Romans who were over them. And he knew, guys, if the Romans find out they don't like riots, if they find out we've been rioting, we're going to lose a lot of the freedoms that we've had here. So I just encourage you, Take care of it legally. The courts are open. You guys got a problem? You think these Christians have robbed you? Go ahead and go to the courts. Let's deal with this legally. But we got to get this band like dispersed here or we're going to be called into question. And so uh, we see that that, uh, what an incredible history there. Spurgeon said, as Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus, it was the saints where they cried, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They had to bear an earnest witness against idolatry. And, dear friends, today's saints in London will not have a very easy time of it if they are faithful to their Lord. For there is much to protest against in this evil generation. But as there were holy ones in Ephesus, God grant that there may be many such in London. We're going to be done by eight tonight. So I got five minutes to finish up this whole introduction to Ephesus. <laughs> Then we have in Acts 20, 17 through 38, Paul has a goodbye later on in his ministry to the Ephesian elders. Uh, Acts 20, 17, for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they'd come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you, 
serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And that is, that is so my heart, and I know I fall so short of that, but that is just part of like the vision of this church and that we would be innocent of the blood of men, that if men come across us, they hear the gospel, that we would have the role of the ministry of the watchman of Ezekiel, that we would be innocent of the blood of individuals, telling them the truth of the gospel, and as well as that, declaring the whole counsel of God, Genesis through Revelation. Verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Acts 20 is one of the places where we see the role of a pastor. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and here in Exodus, or in um, Ephesians, it's not Ephesians, it's Acts chapter 20, to the Ephesians, we see that they are elders, that they are overseers, and that they are shepherds. That word is used interchangeably to speak of the role of a pastor, elder, overseer, bishop, um, and, and the role there is that they are shepherds. And notice they didn't take this role upon themselves. It was the Holy Spirit who made them overseers. And that's part of our ecclesiology as a church, that uh, the Lord is the one who appoints the shepherds, the overseers, the pastors of the church. The church that he loves so much, it says that he purchased it with his own blood. And for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So something we always have to be aware of is coming through those doors will be savage wolves. It doesn't take much, just the discernment of the Holy Spirit to begin to sense who they may be. Savage wolves uh, coming in, and then also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And that's why we always hold to the word of God, testing everything according to the scriptures. Then we see just a wonderful example to follow as leaders in a church. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so as we start this series in Ephesians, 
uh, man, we see the deep love and ministry that Paul had had with the Ephesians, that he had raised up leaders and elders to oversee that church. We see the great love that they had for him, so much so that when it was time to say goodbye, that, uh, that they were sad. They knelt down and cried and wept with him. But that's not the last that we see of, um, of Ephesians in the scriptures. Uh, we see that um, Paul charges Timothy in his later ministry to Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1.3. Just listen to what he has to say. I urged you when I went to the Macedonians, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Okay, now that's important because we see that that's one of the strengths that the Ephesians had, is they didn't put up with any false doctrine. They'd already done that, and they burn it all. They're like, we're not going back to, to worshiping false stuff. And so they were very zealous for truth. Later on in 2 Timothy, Paul would send Tychicus to Ephesus. In fact, he's the one that delivered this letter that, that we have here. Um, and then in closing here, uh, Revelation 2 is a letter that John wrote to the church in Ephesus. And we know that John um, would become uh, one of the pastors of the church in Ephesus as well. Let's just read the exhortation to them before we close tonight. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he, by the way this is Jesus writing this, saying this, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And so you see that that exhortation that Timothy had to charge them not to believe any false doctrine or teach false doctrines, we see that that continued with them. They were zealous for truth. And they would find out if someone was a lying apostle. Uh, it says that they persevered, they had patience, they labored for Jesus' namesake. So isn't that just kind of cool to know the history of Ephesus and that by this time they'd even had the book of this letter of Ephesians to them and that these are good strengths that were happening by that time. Um, but then we have in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, more false teachers, that I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so we had... All sorts of great works in Ephesus. All sorts of great, man, standing up for truth, championing truth. Any false teacher, man, they're out on the street. You know, we don't put up with that. And yet in all of the motion, they lacked the emotion. They forgot the first love. They forgot that time when 
oh, the seven sons of Sceva got their butts kicked by that demon, you know, and we were all terrified, and we knew that he was the living God, and we took our witchcraft books, and we took our wicked things, and we brought them out, and there was a revival, and yeah, look, you know, neighbor Jones, you know, he's bringing his stuff, and there's the Smiths, you know, and we're all, oh, just burning it, get rid of it, this stuff is chaff, this stuff is, it's going to kill us, this is wickedness, and you got people throwing in their, you know, silver idols, and all that, you know, and there's an economic gospel shift going on in Ephesus, and that is first love stuff for the Ephesians. That is like, man, do you remember back in the day? You remember the revival that God did? You remember that? And by this time, it was about 90 AD, about 30 years had gone by, and they had already lost their first love. They were like an old married couple with Jesus. You know, like they just lost that intimacy. And Jesus says, come back come back to it. And so Ron, as you come on up to lead us in song, you guys can shut your, shut your Bibles off, <laughs> I guess, because many of you have the electric versions, or shut the paper versions, and uh, set them aside. And uh, you can stand with me, and we'll just close in prayer, and just close in a time of repentance, and here we are, the Lord, on a Wednesday night in October, coming off hard days of work and labor and parenting and studying this history of Ephesus and two weeks now studying, Lord, we are stirred, God. We want just a, a first love experience with you. Like so many of us remember with our wives and husbands, just the first time we met them and when our heart leapt for them and we just do anything we could to come across them during the day in the hallways or on the streets and just passionate love relationship. And we know how quickly that we can just grow so accustomed to our spouse that we just lose the romance and we don't invest. We don't dig those deep wells in our relationships. And, and Lord, how we can do that with you as well. You just become something that's so familiar to us that you are old news and we don't want to be that, God. We don't want that like the Ephesians had. We want to always walk in the, the first love relationship, God. And so, Lord, maybe for some, that's today for them. That's, today is the first day of their first love relationship. Like my friend Ivan, they would, they would have heard of you tonight, and they would fear and tremble before you, the living, holy God, and all that you do, and, and that they would bow their knee to you in the knees of their hearts and surrender to you tonight, God. And this would be the first day of the rest of their life with you, Jesus. And Lord, for those of us that have spent 5, 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years in relationship with you as Christians, Lord, we would just pray for just fresh love. Lord, that the same time that we used to burn the things and shoot the wicked things with the shotgun and just things that we knew would drag us down Lord, uh, we pray for that same zeal and fervency for things that are starting to creep in today. We would say it just has no place here with us. The false teachers, the false idols, let's kick them out. And Lord, we pray that our church, we would have just a, a bonfire throughout the city, Lord, of things being destroyed in honor of you. And that many would hear the word and believe. We pray that you would just put your finger on those things in our heart that they've got to go. 
they're going to destroy us and they're robbing you of worship. Lord, we just pray for a, a fresh work of your spirit upon us, Lord, that we wouldn't be dry Christians. We would be on fire Christians. We would be Christians that are just fervently in love with you, Jesus. And we would also be those Christians that say no to false teaching. And we would spot the savage wolves coming in from among us and, and from the outside. And we would just catch it before it's too late, Lord. And we will give you all the worship. Go ahead, Ron, lead us in this last song.